everyone to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. If you've listened to my show before, you know that is intro music. I actually took it from, uh, I lifted it from a spot that I like to listen to audio clips. So I just thought I'd run it and see what the feedback is. What'd you think, Dave? Did you like that? That kind of like intro music, a a little funky there. yeah, it kind of it, it it pumped me up here now. Now I'm ready to go here. It, it's a South Florida thing, right? Uh, with a little, you know, that little Latin beat and everything. <laughs> yep, yep. Ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to welcome as my guest today Dave Grogan, who has just written um, a new book called The Hidden Key. It is his third novel. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about Dave before we get to to chatting. Um, He served in active duty in the United States Navy for 26 years, at least 26, maybe a little more, as a Navy judge advocate. During the course of his Navy career, he prosecuted and defended court-martial cases. He negotiated agreements in capitals around the world. He lived abroad in Japan, Cuba, Bahrain. He deployed to the Mediterranean Sea, the Persian Gulf, aboard nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, the USS Enterprise. I'm sure that name is familiar to you. And... contributed to the fight against piracy and international terrorism. Um, I think that probably this is what gave his writing so much authenticity. Um, Dave Grogan, welcome to Authors on the Air. Thanks, Pam. It is really great to be here, and I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to uh, uh, talk to folks here tonight. I'm sorry we haven't been able to connect because of just like today, you know, I had to have you call in. Um, Don't you just love Comcast, love and adore them and worship them at at their feet? I don't. (laughs) But but, but, and it's that I think I understand what's happening with everybody on lockdown. So many people took to the Internet. Um, first to get unemployment benefits, but also I notice a lot of writers are going on and doing Facebook Live because you can't go to a bookstore and do an author signing, and all of the book conferences have been canceled this year. So I think that it's an overload. Would you? Does that make sense to you? No, it does. And, you know, I think a lot of families and friends are getting together. They're Zoom booming, you know, here now. So, right, uh, right. Uh, I think the 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 uh, uh, airwaves are just loaded full of people trying to get along like they normally would without the internet. Yeah. And, and the fact of the matter is uh, for shows like mine, which is a live show and, and we broadcast it now, we were just advised 75 countries. Um, that's oh, wow. a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. We, that's a lot of bandwidth for, for uh, this type of a show. So it sometimes is a little bit difficult connecting. Um, but I'm glad that you're here. Uh, do you mind first if we talk a little bit about your career as a naval officer? Uh, I, oh, I sure, think your 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 experience in the Navy have informed your writing. Obviously, um, what made you decide to go into the Navy? Well, I, I've I've always had an interest in uh, the military. My dad was a uh, an Air Force pilot. He was a fighter pilot uh, ah. in between in between Korea and Vietnam. So didn't serve in combat, but uh, was a uh, just a really accomplished fighter pilot. So I kind of grew up with stories about him 
you know, his flying and my uncle was in the Navy. Um, but I had, I had bad eyes. So I didn't think that was anything that I could do. Um, so I was on my way to be a corporate lawyer. I, I, I'd been a CPA for a while and that wasn't boring enough. So I thought if I coupled it with a law degree, I could, <laughs> I could find the most boring thing possible. And I was at a party one night and talking to a, um, a guy that I met that evening and he was an Intel officer on the USS America, an aircraft carrier, and uh, he was saying how the Navy was putting him through law school and that he would go be an attorney in the, uh, in the Navy when he was done. And I had no idea that the, there, was, there was even such a thing. This was before the days of Tom Cruise and a few good men. Um, mm-hmm. And I had no idea that there was such a thing as an attorney in the Navy. But uh, he took me and he took me down to the Navy base at Norfolk and showed me around. I rechanneled all of my classes at the University of Virginia, going from kind of the corporate tax law um, mm-hmm. field to more trial oriented. And I, I said, you know what, what I'm going to do is give the Navy a try. I'll do it for three years or in, uh, until I'm done having fun. And that that ended about I stopped having fun about 26 years later. <laughs> wow. You know, and you if you have a college degree and especially an advanced degree like a law degree, you um you actually go in as an officer, don't you? You do, you do. Um, so, um, and in fact, as a lawyer, you you actually jump ahead even a little bit faster. They give you credit for your um, your three years of law school. So, you, you in the Navy, you start off as a, a, a lieutenant junior grade, which is about a year, uh, two or three years ahead. At the same time, that kind of puts you as an advantage because when when people see you with this this elevated rank they think you know a whole lot more than you do because you're fresh out of <laughs> fresh out of training, um, making all kinds of uh, just stupid, stupid mistakes. So it takes, it takes a little while for you to, to get acclimated. Um, but usually you're starting with a group of other attorneys. So you're, you're making stupid mistakes with other people. So, you know, there is a television show called JAG, I believe, and my friend Paul Vine used to be one of the writers for it. He is um, a, himself an international best-selling author. Um, are, are you what is considered a JAG officer? Yes, yes. So that's Judge Advocate General is, is, is JAG, isn't it? Yes, it is. So what that, that's just a, a kind of a fancy term to, to mean that you're a, a uniformed or military lawyer. So you, you, um, you, you are in the military as opposed to like a civilian lawyer who might work for the military. Um, mm. you're, you're actually a uniformed attorney, so you can, you can deploy. You're you know, covered by the Geneva Conventions. I mean, all of those things. You're like a, um, any other member of the Navy, um, and you're an officer. So what you were on a, you were on these carriers you were out at sea I'm assuming for a lot of I your was, career not not so much so it's really hard as a lawyer to get um uh, a, a bunch of time at sea um I did um uh, uh, some time down in the um the Caribbean when I recall back around 1994 when the United States there was some uprising in in Haiti some conflict going yes. on in Haiti and and yes. uh, a bunch of people leaving Haiti and uh, leaving Cuba. So I was on the USS Wasp down there um, working for an admiral who was responsible for uh, a, a lot of the naval operations going on down there. And then subsequently in 1996, I deployed on the USS Enterprise as part of a battle group to the um, 
the uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, the first one was the Caribbean. The second one was the Mediterranean and the and, and the Persian Gulf. Um, so I consider those to be some of my most fun tours because I got I was you know doing real Navy stuff, deploying with warfighters. And what I would do typically is I would advise on the rules of engagement. So that's who you can who you can uh, shoot, when you can shoot, where you can go, international law, those types of things. That was my that was my role with the uh, the battle group. Now, does your did your command overlap with maritime law at all? It did. It did. So um, we maritime law in terms of like where you the the types of places that you can go um like right. when you can transit somebody's territorial sea or where you can fly or the types of activities you can do in various places those were the types of things that um that would so like if there was a ship collision i would help um uh be involved in like the investigation with that or an aircraft incident i would help be involved with the with the investigation of that as well just fabulous. It's really fascinating to me. Um, I don't think I've, or if I do know someone who's been a judge, uh, a Navy judge advocate, I, I sure don't know who it is. Uh, do you work on both sides of the aisle, both as a, um, as someone who is pressing a case versus someone who is defending someone, a, a, a naval officer? Sure. So, so when I came in, um, a lot has changed since I came in. When I came in, one like one small command was like a prosecution and defense office. And down one side of the aisle, my first assignment was in Yokosuka, Japan. So mm-hmm. um, h- half the guys did uh, uh, prosecution and half the guys did defense. And usually you started off in defense and you learned your ropes doing working on defense cases. And then as you got more experience, you moved to the prosecution side. And that's because the prosecution's experience, the, the uh, responsibilities were much more significant. They have to manage the entire case. So we would learn, so we would do both of those. Now it's not done that way any longer. Now the defense command and the prosecution command are completely separate um, to avoid any conflict of interest or anything. It's, it's, um, it's, it's come a long way since then. Not that I felt like there was any uh, conflict of interest when we did things, but now the way that it's structured, even the appearance of a conflict of interest has been removed by having the defense report up through a separate chain of command so that there's, so that they're clearly working independently for their clients. So I want to kind of flash forward to a present day naval thing. And that was the uh, Captain Crozier, I think his name was, who sent Mm -hmm. the memo about COVID on his ship. Would that have been something you would have been involved in? So it it probably would have been. So I I was the the lawyer for the U.S. Atlantic Fleet and Mm -hmm. um, for a few years. And there's also a lawyer for the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Um, mm-hmm. And the lawyer for the U.S. Pacific Fleet, that's the kind of thing that they probably would have been involved in, um, advising their their commander, the, the probably the four-star admiral who's the uh, commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, um, and, and the intermediate commands. Each one would take a look at the investigation um, as, there, as an investigation is done, and each one might be in, in, involved in trying to come up with what an appropriate course of action would be. And usually lawyers are advised 
lawyers are advisors and the commanders are the ones that actually get to make the decisions. But um, lawyers usually work really, really closely with commanders, especially the more senior that you, you get. So as I got probably the, my, the last 15 years of my command or my, uh, my, my uh, career, I worked primarily with uh, three and four star admirals uh, uh, the whole time advising them. So I would be their lawyer on their staff um, advising them on various things. So any big ticket investigation or item we would be, we would be involved in and, and, and try to assist, um, you know, with the fact finding and, and right, make recommendations right. and courses of action to the commander. Well, that kind of took a, that crashed and burned really fast and that particular case. And now there's a negotiation or a question or a debate whether or not that gentleman should be reinstated or not. I'm not going to ask your opinion on it because, um, you're not you're not in that position anymore to have to worry about it. When you were in the Caribbean, did you ever go to the Southcom Center, the Southern Command Center in Miami? I never made it to Southcom. Um, I did spend some time. I was um, a commanding officer of uh, the trial service office, the prosecution office that was located in in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. So we I was responsible uh. for. Um, all of our prosecution offices in the southeast. So I made it down to Key West, but I never, I never had the opportunity to come down to Southcom. I actually taught some classes out at Southcom. It was a really interesting experience. Did you really? So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, wow. um, yeah, I, uh, I, I am um, a, a certified victim advocate. So I talked a lot about interpersonal violence, and um, I know that the military has um, supposedly a, a record of a lot of domestic violence and, and stuff going on. I don't know that it's any higher than any place else. You just probably hear about it more. more, Or it's uh, people are outraged more like, it, you know, people aren't people no matter what job they do. But, yes, I, um, I actually have a few certificates from whoever the commander in charge was, you know, uh, from being out. There was an interesting experience, though. I will tell you that. Um, uh, it, I felt like after I because I've lectured around the country and I felt like my audience was not free to say whatever they wanted to say and that kind of broke my heart a little bit but um, yeah, but it's yeah. an interesting place I I have a lot of respect for for law enforcement and the military of any kind so uh, and having worked in law enforcement myself so as an advocate <clears throat> I understand now, it seems to me that your writing is very much informed by your career. Would that be a fair assumption to make? I think that's a really fair assumption to make. Um, there Have, are – no, go ahead. No, you continue. It's, this is your show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you. Um, um, there are um, – all kinds of uh, incidents through these through these stories that relate to something that may have happened in my um, in my career in some way, shape, or form, and I have changed them so that even the people involved wouldn't be able to um, you, you know recognize them. But uh, all the a lot of the stuff I was an inter the, the last half of my career I was an international attorney. That's what my specialty was. I went back to law school, the Navy sent me back at about the, 
the uh, 10 or 12 year mark to go get a master's degree in international law. And so um, that's what I studied. I traveled extensively um, and that's where I would negotiate treaties and, and that, but I, that brought me into contact with all kinds of different cultures and people. And um, it's that, that travel, that interaction with people um, around the world and, and the, the, the many incidents that um, just the, the, the stuff that you couldn't make up even, <laughs> even if you wanted right. to. Um, sure. I, that, that all influences, uh, influences my writing in, in, in just about every, in every book. There are allusions back to my career. Uh, so I want to back up a little bit. You said that the, after about 12 years, the Navy sent you back to school to get your master's in international law. Where do they send you? So um, mostly you can go at, at the time, there were only a number of uh, a, a few number of schools that, that you could go to at the time. But now they, they broadened that. I mean, you, you could get a master's at Harvard if you could get accepted to Harvard. Um, at the time that I went, there was there was only one school that was being offered and that. And it was a wonderful school. It was George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C. And um, and in fact, that is where. Um, I, I took a class in human rights, and I met a professor by the name of Thomas Bergenthal, who was um, just an extraordinarily world-renowned authority on, on uh, human rights. And that's what gave me the idea for my first book, The Siegel Dispositions. Um, it is, uh, it has, a, has human rights undertones. I would be a liar if I didn't say Thomas Bergenthal uh, didn't have something to do with one of the characters in it. And uh, that's really what got my, my writing career started. Had you always enjoyed writing, Dave? I had never written any fiction before the, um, the Siegel Dispositions. Um, How fascinating. Tell me what in the world – now, you had to be a reader. I mean, you obviously have been a reader. You can't write books without being a reader. Yeah. I, I, I would say, you know – um, I was not a prolific reader I, because the job took up so much time. Sure. Um, that I, right. I, but I, and I, but I did, I read extent, I read a lot of professional stuff um, all the time. Yes. But yes. What I, I have to say that this class, this class transformed me. It, 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 sitting, not, not only was the professor brilliant, but the class had students in it from all over the world. Um, including students from Germany and, and human rights when you're talking about the Holocaust and your professor is a Holocaust survivor. It's just, it's just an, an amazing setting to learn in. Wow. And I have to say that when I went into the class, I kind of thought, oh, human rights, you know, how could you disagree with human rights? But when I came out of the class, I saw that you really needed to be proactive in protecting human rights. It wasn't enough to just say, yeah, they're good. So right. I wanted to write something that might have, again, that, that might convey a little bit of that in, in, in um, an interesting story, what I hoped would be an interesting story. And that would be my, that was the best way that I could think of to maybe contribute to human rights a little bit. So that's what I did as I wrote the, the Siegel Dispositions. And, um, and I just started it. I used to uh, uh, run from, the Pentagon each day. I was working at the Pentagon at the time, and I'd run during lunch to the Lincoln Memorial and back. That's what we would do often for exercise. So I'd think about what I was going to write that night 
running to and from during that three and a half mile run. I'd work, I'd get home like about seven o'clock uh, or eight o'clock at night, put the kids to bed with my wife if they were still um, awake. And then I'd write until uh, 12 or one o'clock in the morning and then start it all over the next day. And that's, that was how the Siegel Dispositions came about. Oh, what a fascinating story. Um, how did you know or how did you learn how to write? Because you can't just sit down and, pl- and write down a book and everyone says, oh, my God, this is just the best thing since sliced bread. You have to, you have to know how to write a book, story arc, how to pacing, how to do action, dialogue, character, everything. How did you learn all that? I would say probably watching movies would be the, the really? um, you know, yes, some of the, um, the, the, the Grisham movies and some Tom mm-hmm. Clancy. I did read um, Hunt for Red October, which was maybe mm-hmm. the book that, that actually brought me back to reading again. Um, but mo- mostly it was probably watching movies and uh, because I, I just was not a prolific reader. Um, I, I hmm. read way more now, and 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 I also um, I also audible a lot. I, I um, sure. when I'm driving right. or walking around, I, I audible a lot. So I'm I'm much 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 better read than I was back then. But back then it was just I just kind of started, and I I just I, it was like I pictured the 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 scenes in my head as if I were watching them on on a movie screen. I mean that's that was kind of how they developed. Interesting. Um, you know, you all, as a, an attorney, you write a lot of briefs and you, <laughs> some short, some yeah. not so yep. short, but you, um, you really have to write just the facts. And so uh, I'm sure that that gave you a really good way to start, you know, knowing what you want, what your facts were, was filling in the narrative a little bit more difficult. It was. And, and um, I will. I, I work. Or I, I, you have a small press, Camel Press. Um, once mm-hmm. they once they got involved, and I I will say I made every mistake a brand new author could make. You know, basically beginning the story once upon a time. You know, I mean it was right, it was like right. that. So it took a long time, and I was still on active duty. Um, so you know, I didn't have. I, I wasn't. There might be years where I'd put the book down and then come back to it. But the the two editors that I worked with at Camel Press um, were, they just took the time to teach me. And I learned so much from them. Um, Catherine Treadgold and Jennifer McCord were the two at Camel Press. And they, they were just gracious and took the time and helped me become more descriptive. And I think you can really see a progression over the course of my three books and it's due to them. Uh, truly That's wonderful. Uh, teaching me how to become a better writer. It's interesting you say that because there are writers who say, I don't listen to anything my editor says except to tell me a spelling's wrong or something. And <laughs> <laughs> always a big mistake. You would have enjoyed my guest last night. Um, Scott Turow was on the show. And oh, wow. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yes, he, um, he, uh, I'll, I'll send, make sure that you the link um, for the show. For the show. Uh, Thank um, you very much. He, you're welcome. He started out as a creative writing major and wanted to teach creative writing and then was always fascinated with the law. And that's how he ended up becoming a lawyer. I always thought it was the other way around, but it was not. And so, wow, uh, and, wow. I, and I've, 
I've spoken to him several times and have met him. He's he's just truly a lovely man. And uh, so I learned every time I speak to someone, I learn something new, and I'm thrilled about it. Your second book, Sapphire Pavilion, uh, is totally different than the first one. This is is this the first Steve Stillwell book? So um, the Seagull Dispositions is the first Steve Stillwell book, and and that's okay. when I. I that's when Steve, he retires from the Navy and he sets up his practice in Williamsburg, Virginia. And then two years later is Sapphire Pavilion. So it's set in the year 2000. And so um, it is did completely you, different. Did you, when you left the Navy, set up a private practice for yourself? Or did you retire from lawyering at that point? Uh, so Steve's, the, the, the Steve Stillwell series... That's the lawyer that I wanted to be. I wanted ah. to set up a small town practice in Williamsburg. So he, Steve Stillwell is, I'm living my retirement vicariously through Steve Stillwell. Um, ah. I didn't, so I, I didn't retire until 2014. So um, the book, actually, I wrote the book in, in about the year 2000 or 2001. Um, oh. And it just took me that long to have it come out and get an agent and all those other types of things. Um, I now work at the University of Illinois, and I am a compliance person, so I'm not practicing law. Um, but Steve Stillwell, I still get to practice law through Steve Stillwell. Through and Steve. He's my hero. <laughs> <laughs> How wonderful. <laughs> Our, we became aware of you through, from The Hidden Key. This is the, um, the newest Steve Stillwell book. Um, as I said to you, our reviewers raved about this book. They thought oh, it was just you. terrific. So yeah, and you've gotten really a lot of good reviews on our pages. So, um, again, you have um, Steve here, and he's interacting still with the Navy in some way or the other. Um, I know you've gotten a lot of good blurbs from other writers for this. Congratulations on that. Oh, um, let's you. talk. Let's talk about the hidden key. You tell me the story. Pretend like we're in an elevator, and I say, so, Dave, what's your new book about? And you say, well, Pam. <laughs> so here's – so what I, re what I really tried to do here was um, – and I was influenced by Dan Brown. I have to say I never read any of Dan Brown's stuff intentionally because I knew that this was going to be a story someday. I finally got to read Dan Brown last December – um, after I finished everything, <laughs> and it was wonderful reading, um, uh, finally getting to read The Da Vinci Code. But that's what kind of gave me the idea of religious relics. So here's, here's the story. This is all true, too, and, and so much of this book you can look up and fact check. So um, during the Iraq War in 2003, the Marines built a camp on the ruins of the ancient city of Babylon. And... Um, uh, they they did they built a base there, so my this story is about um, a, a a navy CB who finds a tablet when he's building the base and when he and the tablet has a map on it. Now, if you go again to the British Museum, you'll find that there's a real tablet that was found in 1899 called the Sipper Tablet. It was found in Sipper, Iraq. And it has a map of the ancient city, the world, according to the ancient city of Babylon. On it. It's real, but it's missing the bottom part of the map. So the story of the hidden key is when this Navy Seabee finds this 
uh, clay tablet, this ancient clay tablet, it's got the rest of the map on it. And he smuggles it back to the United States. And when he does, bad stuff starts to happen. Isn't that always the way you go, you know, look at Indiana (laughs) Jones. That should be a lesson to all you people who, who have these ancient treasure maps and things promising (laughs) gold, right? That's right. That's right. Um, You know your countries well. So I'm assuming it's because you traveled so extensively in the Navy. Um, Do you feel like Steve is walking in your footsteps or are you walking in Steve's footsteps? So I'm, I'm walking in Steve's and the reason for that. So I'm a, I'm a very visual earlier on. I I, I said, you know, when I was writing the Siegel dispositions, I kind of pictured it like a movie and I was writing the movie. So when Mm -hmm. I write, I, I really have to picture what I see. So I actually, I go to, I go to the places that I'm writing about. So um, the, the uh, hidden key takes place in a number of countries. Um, I visited them all during the course of writing this. Um, I'll give you an example here. Um, I knew that I wanted chapter two to take place in an Indian restaurant in London. So I researched Indian restaurants in London on the web and I found and South Indian restaurants and I found a couple that looked good. So I hopped on a plane. I flew over to London. I ate at both of those two South Indian restaurants and the result was the Madras Star in Chapter Two. Um, wow! That's the same. The same with um, Italy. The scenes in Italy. I I spent uh, a wonderful week in India, going through Chennai, um, in South India, and and Kochi and Pali. You were in the south to make sure that I can I uh, I could capture it correctly. And some of the characters in this book, like Rani Ashurvatam, would not have been there. Um, had I not gone to see them because I actually, it just gave me a much better um, uh, impression or picture of the people and places that I needed to write about. So that's kind of, I started that really with Sapphire Pavilion. I went to Vietnam and and just wandered all through Saigon and uh, through a number of places. Um, And I intended only to really write a chapter or two in Vietnam and half the book. Um, was from there. And that, that, I think, part of my trademark now is now to, to actually visit the places while I'm writing. Uh, Mark Graney does the same thing. He actually goes wherever he's writing. And, you know, I always just tease him. I say, you poor thing. Uh, there are some really <laughs> great writers who do the same thing. They say, I want to walk in the footsteps of my character. And yes, yes. Um, it brings so much authenticity to to the story. Uh, not that in fiction you can't create your own town or your own people or anything, but um, I just got back from London not too long ago, and I recall I, I met a chef named Ali who was the best Indian chef I'd ever met, as well oh, wow. as I had amazing Greek food when I was there. So yeah. I, I'm like you. I, I like to dig into the culture of things as well. And um, so I understand your your uh, I understand what you're talking about. You want to you're a visual guy. You want to experience it yourself. Good for you. Well, congratulations on the the positive feedback you're getting on this. Are you writing your next book? I have I have it in my head. I have the concept. Um, I need to start doing some writing for it. Uh, or some research for it. I'm not really ready to start putting pen to paper, 
but I do have the concept. Um, when you when you're getting ready to write a book, Dave, do you start with the idea, the plot, or do you start with the character and then insert them someplace? Because you already have I a start, standing character, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a few characters that, that will roll forward. Um, generally it's the, 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 the law office staff for sure. Right. Um, right. They'll, they'll roll forward. Um, the rest of the people uh, kind of come along. Um, and, and it's a lot of the way that I write is when I'll, I'll be driving in a car and I just turn off the radio and think like, what are the next three or four chapters going to be? And then I come back and outline them and put them. I, I, I have a spread. It's the old accountant in me. I put it on a spreadsheet with kind of a matrix. It's got, you know, the location on the top and the chapter down on the side. And then I fill the stuff in so that all the timing works. Cause that's one of the hardest things that I've, really the hardest thing is when you you've got characters that are in India and in the United States or traveling, you know, all around the time zones really um, control the action. Um, and uh, well, there was true. one, yeah, it was murder of one of the, one of the, my readers came back and said, Oh, what, what happened to Casey? Where'd she go? And, and I said, well, where are you? And he asked her, he told me where he was and it was because she was traveling and she was in between. And, and so I have to make sure that I, I leave sufficient time for her to, to get from one place to another realistically. And that's kind of how the characters develop. They, it, it, as, I, as the scene kind of unfolds, I, I bring the people in um, that I think will help drive whatever point I'm trying to get across with. You, you will see what happens. The first time you mention a, character, a, reg, a recurring character's birthday and you get it wrong, the next book <laughs> or five books yeah. down the road, you're going to get email. You're going to get email like there's nobody's <laughs> business. Or if you've said so-and-so is allergic to tomatoes and then one day he's having like, you know, a cabrera salad, you're in deep kimchi with that. The, your readers <laughs> will let you know. <laughs> but they are not shy about that. And God, whatever you do, don't put a gun in someone's hand unless you know how to use it. So, um, <laughs> you know, these are my yeah, observations yeah. after, I don't know, I think I've, done now over 1,500 interviews and you know oh, readers can cow. be pretty brutal yeah they can be pretty brutal yeah, oh yeah, but, yeah 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 oh my god they'll, they'll tell you right away if they think you're wrong so um I have just really enjoyed talking to you a whole lot can you please tell listeners who Marley is so Marley is my dog um she is um Right now, my, my wife and, and I are uh, empty nesters with the exception of, of my dog. She's uh, about 12 years old, and you, you know how they say um, dogs look like their owners? Well, I, yeah. Marley would probably say I look like her, um, but we're both, <laughs> we're both a little graying right now. Um, so, uh, and she's, she's, she's my – uh, I, I, I spend a lot of time with Marley, so – well, I think that's wonderful. Anyone you want to give a shout out to, Dave? While we're well before we get finished here. Um, Wiley Sechek, uh, it's kind of, of my course. my uh, my team here. Um, Wiley Sechek and Jennifer McCord the, for for this time around have just been instrumental in helping me. Um, uh, I, you know, you, I can't write the book myself, and and I have a group of readers that that review stuff and, and, and tells me the, the most, this is so critical. They, they tell me when stuff's bad 
and I need to know that, and uh, I need their honest opinion. So I don't want to, if I mention their names, I'll mess it up, but I will mention one, my dad, Mike Grogan. So that, that writing team, thanks so much for all that you've done for me. I really appreciate it. And Wiley's one of the good ones. He and I know each other. We've met. We, he's a terrific guy. Um, as a matter of fact, we consider him one of the sponsors in this network. So for those who don't know, Wiley Sachak is, um, is a publicist, and you can find him on Wiley Sachak PR, I think. is his. But anyway, it's on our supporters page. He's a great guy, and thank you, Wiley, for always supporting this network. Uh, he's, he's terrific, a, a doll to work with. Pat, please tell everyone where they can find you on the web and in social media. Sure. Um, DavidEGrogan.com. Um, that is the best place to find me, learn about my books, learn about the blog that I do about veterans. Um, uh, once a month, I, I write up a different veteran story. You can read those there. And I'm also on uh, Facebook at uh, David E. Grogan and also at, uh, at David E. Grogan on Twitter. David E. Grogan, Captain, it has just been an absolute pleasure and an honor to speak to you thank you for your service to our country and thank you for being such an interesting guest today on authors on the air i hope one day you'll come back oh pam i would love to and i'm just so appreciative of this opportunity just thank you so much for allowing me the the chance to talk to people maybe you'll come back as a guest host is there some author you'd like to talk to uh i would you know, um, there's there's a, a, a woman that I really admire and I read quite a bit. Um, her name is Susan Furlong, and, and she's a wonderful article, uh, author, and she writes, she's got a character who's a female wounded warrior veteran named Bryn Callahan, and she, she is a, a spectacular um, writer, and, and, and her, PT, her, her, her character is so real. Um, I work with a lot of veterans and interview a lot of veterans, and her character is so real, um, and it tells the story of the from a woman who served in the military. Susan Furlong would be great. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to implore you to get in touch with Wiley and have him give you my email and my phone number, and let's see if we can make that happen, okay? I would love that. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Uh, This is Captain David E. Grogan, or author David E. Grogan. The new book is called The Hidden Key. David, thank you so much for being with me, and I look forward to talking to you again. In the meanwhile, stay safe. Stay, uh, you and Marley and and Mrs. Grogan, stay (laughs) sheltered in place, and, um, and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, Pam. You're absolutely welcome. And listeners, thanks for joining me, and thank you, Mom and Dad. I'll see you later. 